Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. I don't know about any of you, but I am still obsessed with Mindy Kaling after her amazing appearance on The Office. Um, she is also an author, for those of you who don't know. This is her third work. It's called Nothing Like I Imagined, and it's an Amazon original story. It's a collection of short stories, six of them, about how she juggles life as a new mom, actress, and Hollywood power bruncher. And her story collection is actually the sponsor of this episode. Uh, It was written and narrated by Mindy, and it's great to listen to on the go, available in audio and ebook format. Prime members can listen and read it for free. So you can download this today at amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. That's amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. It's absolutely hilarious, and just you will not want to stop reading. So check it out today, amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. Deborah Tannen is a university professor and professor of linguistics at Georgetown University and the author of many books and articles about how the language of everyday conversation affects relationships. She's best known as the author of You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years, including eight months as number one and has been translated into 31 languages. She's also written You Are Always Mom's Favorite, Sisters in Conversation Throughout Their Lives, which was a New York Times bestseller. She also wrote You're Wearing That, Understanding Mothers and Daughters in Conversation, which spent 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, Talking from 9 to 5, Women and Men at Work, also a New York Times business bestseller, The Argument Culture, Stopping America's War of Words, and I only say this because I love you, Talking to Your Parents, Partners, Sibs, and Kids When You're All Adults. Her latest book is Finding My Father, His Century-Long Journey from World War I, Warsaw, and My Quest to Follow. Hello. Hi there. Hi. How are you? Put my picture on. Yes. <laughs> nice to see you. Thank you so much for being interested in this. Oh my gosh, of course. I was so excited when I even heard you were coming out with a memoir after reading so many of, I mean, even just like right here. Hold on. I'll grab this. <laughs> I was going to say your books are scattered all around my office. Oh my goodness. That I've had for so long, but you're wearing that and... I mean, that was my mother. You're like all over. You've been my like guiding light here. <laughs> so much. Thank you. Is your name the Hebrew name Tzipi? No, it's short for Elizabeth. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Elizabeth is one of those names that has so many different diminutives, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. My Hebrew name is Elisheva. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> I had to start like a an email to myself with all my kids' Hebrew names because I couldn't remember what any of them were. <laughs> well, I have an um, Israeli relative named Tzipi, T-Z-I-P-I, 
And I have an American friend who has that name, but she calls it Zippy in this country. Yeah. Yes. I get a lot of variations on what people think my name is. So, (laughs) but thanks for coming on my show. And I'm excited to talk about your latest book. Would you mind telling listeners what Finding My Father is about? Although I'll just read the subtitle and that gives a clue. His century long journey from World War I Warsaw and my quest to follow. So just tell us more about the book and what inspired you to write it. Although you include that in there. So just tell everybody else. Yeah. My father was born in a Hasidic household in Warsaw in 1908 and came to the United States when he was 12. He lived to be 98. He died two weeks before his 98th birthday. And he, after he retired, was almost obsessed with talking about his past, especially his childhood in Warsaw, which he remembered in astonishing detail, but his entire life, really. So I would trace two things about this to my wanting to write this book. One is the very personal reason, and the other is the maybe broader perspective. The personal reason, I think, is that when I was a child, I adored my father. He was the parent that I felt connected to. I felt he understood me. If I I could ask him anything, he would answer with patience and precision. He loved words and language, as I did. And I felt like if I said something to him, he would understand it the way I meant it. Whereas my mother, I felt often often didn't or might have been annoyed by my, my what I what I was saying, but he was he was absent more than he was present. The way I put it in the introduction is the strongest presence that I felt in the house was his absence. I felt like I was spending my days with my mother, missing my father, and that really went on pretty much into adulthood. And we can talk later about his work life, which is a saga in itself. But he was gone more than, far more than he was there. And I think that was often true of, of parents at the time. At the time, it was mostly fathers. I think now it could be fathers and mothers. And after he retired, his wanting to spend all this time talking about his past meant that if I talked to him about his past, I could spend time with him. And I'm kind of a workaholic. So once I decided that I was going to write a book about him, I could spend hours talking to him during the day, which I otherwise would never do. And I recorded our conversations once he realized that I was doing this. And he encouraged it. Uh, In fact, I found notes in which I, I should say he saved every piece of paper that came into his life. And he left me many, many, many different kinds of documents and letters and notes and and, uh, memories that he wrote for me. And once he began doing that, I had more and more material that I felt gave me a perspective on the entire century. His life really is like a walking tour through history. He was uh, lived in this World War I Jewish community of Warsaw, Hasidic community, before, during, and after World War One, And he really captured that community in the beginning. My thought about the book, and his too, because I have a copy of a letter he wrote to someone back in, oh gee, the early 80s. Deborah is going to write a book about the Jewish community of Warsaw based on my memories. And I was thinking of it that way. But then I realized his entire life reflected these different cataclysmic events of that century. The Bolshevik Revolution, which had a tremendous effect on his mother's siblings, especially her younger siblings, whom he lived with because he had no father. So he was living in his mother's 
nuclear family, which was grandfather, grandmother, and many, many aunts and uncles, nine that were living there. When he was there, I can name 14 of them and what happened to them, tell you their life stories. A few of them I do tell in the book. So the younger ones were caught up in in the Bolshevik Revolution and became passionate communists. And the one who influenced him the most, the youngest of all those aunts and uncles, was only six years older than my father was and more like an older sister that he admired. So by the time he came to the United States, he told me later, years later, he already was identified as a communist and an atheist, which he says happened to him. He converted, really, when he was six, (laughs) following his aunt around. And then his whole experience of work is just captures one Jewish immigrant experience. He quit high school at 14, went to work in the garment district in New York, as so many immigrants did, and yet managed to go to law school at night, become a lawyer, that then it was the Depression, that other cataclysmic event. And there's something almost ironic or maybe appropriate, this book coming out in a pandemic, because the fact that he finished law school in the Depression made it impossible for him to then support. He was the sole support of his mother and sister, having no father. Because of the Depression, he could not work as a lawyer. And so he, for all those years, till he was 50, when he was 50, when I was in junior high, he did go become, start to work as a lawyer and established a workman's compensation firm. At the time, we said workmen's, and now we say workers, which actually ended up being the largest workers' compensation firm in New York City, which means, he liked to point out, the largest in the world. But he did so many different things before he could do that because of the Depression. And I think many people today are suffering similar consequences. Their futures so changed and so much more challenging because of because of the economic situation. So I'll make one last comment here. It so much helped me understand the contrast between his way of looking at the world and his life and relationships between women and men. There's also drama about who he married and why he married my mother and not another woman he might have married. But when my father sat down to write about his life, he began by listing all the jobs he had held. And to him, that really captured his life. That was the summary of his life, the work that he did. When I thought about his life, when I think about my life, I begin with relationships. Who was important in my life, who influenced me, who I loved, how those relationships developed. But for him, it it was work. And I came to understand that really family and work were inextricably intertwined in his mind. Family meant obligation to support the people you loved. And how you went about doing that was both a summary of his life and also proof of his devotion to the family. It was because of that love that he couldn't go to work as a lawyer and let his family starve while or have a difficult time while he built up a practice. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's amazing because I feel like people in their 50s think like that's, you know, it's too late. Like somebody in their 40s the other day said to me like, oh, I, I got started. I thought it was too late to write a book. And thinking, no, 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 no. Like, look at this. Your dad, even back then, launched a whole new career so late in life. And yet 
it was only half his life. He still had half to go. So I don't know. It's very in, encouraging and empowering to think that, you know, at any moment, just start following your dream and it's not too late. Yes, yes. In his case, it was opportunity. So the brief summary of how it all happened, he did all these different things during the Depression. And then there was a civil service exam. He was taking, he said, many, many civil service exams. There would be thousands of people taking an exam for a few jobs. But uh, toward late, late in the Depression, things were starting to open up. He got the offer to be a prison guard in the federal penitentiary in Danbury, Connecticut. Not the kind of job he thought he was going to consider, but he went, tried it out. He was very happy there. He loved the lifestyle that went along with it. He had always lived in cities in Warsaw and then in New York City, always in apartments. For the first time, he lived in a house. There was a beautiful yard. Everybody who talked about it talked about it with such longing when they were no longer there. Everyone in the family, that is my father, my mother, my sister who was alive at the time, my older sister was a little girl at the time, talked about the beautiful weeping willow tree in the backyard. And he was doing very well at it. He was promoted to parole officer very quickly. But then he got an offer based on another exam he had taken, civil service exam, to be an alcohol tax inspector with the Treasury Department, chasing bootleggers. And it offered a bit more money, and he felt he had to take it because that was it was all about doing what you had to do to support your family. When he told the warden that he was making this change, the warden was beside himself. You are doing so well here. You are going to be a warden very soon in a year. And he thought that was ridiculous. He said, no, there's no way that a Jew will be a warden. There are no Jewish wardens. And the warden said, well, that's because there were no Jews in the system. But now that there are, of course, you'll be promoted. He didn't believe it. He did not believe it was possible, and he made the switch. It turned out that the person who was given his job as parole officer became a warden in a year, and that person was Jewish. So that realization that he could have had that comfortable life became especially upsetting to him because the job in as alcohol tax inspector, the job was okay. He didn't love it, but it was all right. But the family had moved to Providence, Rhode Island, where nobody was happy. They had no community as they had had in Danbury. That word, Danbury, was like a Garden of Eden. I heard about my whole life, the wonderful life they had in Danbury, the miserable life they had in Providence. My mother became pregnant with me, so of course I felt always felt guilty about this, and they moved back to New York. She wanted to have the baby in New York. And as a stopgap measure, he took a job in a factory as a cutter. It was supposed to be just a brief time while he became very active in politics. He was no longer a communist. He became disillusioned with communism in 1939 when Hitler made a a pact with, with Stalin, made a pact with Hitler, but he became active in the New York Liberal Party, so kind of a party somewhat left of the Democrats. He was promised a political appointment within a year. It took 13 years. Each year it was next year, next election, after the election, wait for the election. And so that contrast of these 13 years working in a factory when he could have been a warden and have a comfortable life and his family would have been happier. So that always was a a shadow 
over his life and over and over the family. Though he did not give me the sense that he, how much he disliked that working in a factory. I did not sense that. He never allowed us to see how unhappy he was. But he certainly talked about it after when we had all these conversations. How did it make you feel to hear about how he had been feeling and sort of hiding all that time? Yes, and I'm grateful to him for that. You know, there was one anecdote he wrote about. He started writing his memories for me as well. And there was one he described in something that he written that he wrote. I guess he wrote it in his 80s, but then he retold it in his 90s when we talked face to face. After my mother died, he moved to an assisted living facility where we talked many, many, many hours. He remembered, this is before he passed the exam and got the job in in Danbury, so it was during the Depression, having no job. You know, he was every day looking for work. He always worked, but it would be temporary jobs, trying to find something that he could, that would uh, work out. And he passed his mother sitting outside her apartment. Now, he had supported his mother from the age of 14 until he got married at the age of 24. So 10 years, he was sole support. And it turned out that she was putting money away all those years. <laughs> she would even, he would keep out a small amount for himself for car fare. She would go through his pockets if she found it and take it. So she was a piece of work. He passed his mother and asked her if she would lend him $5. And she not only refused, but began berating him that he was a spendthrift, that he was irresponsible. And he wrote, even now when I think about it, I feel like crying because he felt so humiliated by this. And I don't think it was so specifically about his mother. I'm sure that was part of it. But that having sacrificed so much to get a law degree, pass the bar, he was a lawyer. He should have been working as a lawyer. And here he was, penniless. And then he wrote that he did manage to get a job the next day. He was able to borrow a small amount of money from the bank, which apparently was part of their, the way he kept things going. He said, where I had an unblemished record. But yeah, and the thing about the way he wrote about it that really was so fascinating to me and so enlightening, he said he felt so terrible because his situation was financially so bad. And he said, the need to hide it from my family, that I felt that way. And I realized, yeah, that's what he did. My first 13 years of my life when he was working in a factory, he completely hid the negative feelings he had about that. And I was shocked when I asked him as a, in one of our conversations when he was 97, he, he was alert till the end, how did you feel about working as a cutter? And he said, I hated every minute of it. Oh. I had no suspicion. I wonder if this has informed all of your work on communication, right? Like that's such a central part of what you investigate is how to ease that communication between all different types of people. Do you think it has something to do with that? Yes, absolutely. On two levels. People ask me, why did I write and how did I know how to write? For general audiences, I was trained as an academic. And I always say, and why did I want to? I always say I wanted to write a book that my mother could read. (laughs) But really, it's that I did grow up in that working class background. My father's friends who were factory workers, as he was, my mother's many siblings. Some were what we would now call middle class. Some were one person owned a factory, a small factory. Others worked in factories. So I grew up talking to people who 
did not have a college education and even a high school education and would not have understood had I talked the way I talked to my academic colleagues. But also, really, I think from my father, I got this perspective on language. He was the one, after people left, when we'd sit around and talk and gather, he was the one who would say, did you see how she said that? And, you know, how her expression looked when she said it. And he would draw conclusions from the subtle, subtle wording. I had hired somebody before I began interviewing him, hired someone somebody told me about that interviewed older people about their histories, about their past. And I hired someone to interview both my parents. And at one point, she asked my father about his grandfather. How do you like to remember him? And he said, like it or not, I remember him as... Picking up the phrasing that she used, and I was amused that he was kind of subtly questioning it, criticizing it even. So he had that sensitivity to language, and I think I think I did pick that up from him. One last comment about that that I'll tell you. So because he had been raised in this Hasidic background, he had been sent to what we call what was called Cheder, the religious school, from the time he was four all day uh, until he was old enough to go to gymnasium. Then he was had tutors at night and went to secular school during the day. So he had this training in Talmud from the time he was studying religious texts from the time he was very small, and he hated it. He had so many stories about how much he hated losing his childhood to these to Cheder, and the teacher was cruel, as many of those teachers were. And so the first academic paper I published, I was still a graduate student, I sent it to my parents. My mother wouldn't read an academic paper, but my father would. And he called me and he started by telling me how much he admired it. And and then he started saying how, yeah, you know, the way you pull apart all the meaning of the words and look for the underlying meaning. And it reminded me of how I was trained to study Talmud and how we had to look for the meanings. And and he started getting worked up, remembering how much he hated all that. And finally he got to one point and he said, I don't know how you can stand it. <laughs> no, we, burst, we burst out laughing. <laughs> I think and many linguists, by the way, are Jewish, and I think that Talmudic tradition is probably a part of it. Interesting. And you included in this book why you did not write a book about your mother. <laughs> and you kind of <laughs> poked fun at her gently and how she would talk. Can you speak a little more about your relationship with her? Yes. Well, my mother tended to be very unhappy, and so she would take that out both on my father and on the kids, especially me, because I was kind of difficult, and I think I inherited some of that tendency to be unhappy, so I I was not an easy kid. And that was the fact that my mother didn't want a third child, which I always knew, and my father did, and apparently he talked her into giving it a try, like leaving it to fate. And after one night, she said, no, I don't really want that, but it was too late. So I, I always knew that. <laughs> But my mother was not contemplative or introspective, and she didn't tend to, like, take a step back and and ask questions about the way the world is. And she wasn't interested in talking about her past. And because I was recording all these conversations, I actually captured it on tape. At that time, it was a cassette tape. And I, some of the conversations in the book are transcribed from actual conversations we had. But there was one where she was often envious that I spent all this time talking to my father. She didn't like it when I was alone with him and she wanted the attention for herself. So one time she came in and she said, well, I'm going to have to think about my past. 
And I, and I said, yeah, I want to know about your past. And I started asking you a question. I think it went something like, do you remember the house you grew up in? Yeah, sort of. I, I knew we, you know, we had a house. Do you remember the furniture? Because my father gave all these detailed descriptions. Do you remember dinner? Dinner? Yeah. Like, <laughs> do you remember what dinner was like? No, I know, I know there was a table and a chair. Did you have friends? You know, again, my father had these stories about all the other kids he knew and their life stories. I know I had friends. Do you remember any particular friends? No. And then she would get impatient very quickly. And she said, we came to this country. We always had enough to eat. Really nothing special. That's it. And clearly there's many ways that that's wonderful that she didn't get obsessed with the past. She was very impatient with my father's being so obsessed with his past. Apparently she made a rule in the house no talking about dead people. <laughs> he, he always wanted to reminisce about, you know, his grandfather and his, his past. And, and he made fun of himself for it. He said, yeah, well, she's like most people. She's interested in the present. But to me, it isn't real until it's past. So, yeah. So I couldn't write a book about my mother because she didn't give me the material. And my father gave me these mountains of words, journals that he kept letters that he kept, notes that he kept, memories he wrote down for me. He learned to use a computer when he was 70, and he learned to use email when he was 80. So he was sending me these long letters that he typed and long emails and so much material to work with, too much in a way. That was part of what took me so long to write it. Yeah, I do talk about my mother in the book, You Were in That, about mothers and daughters. I have a lot of anecdotes about Yes. <laughs> How long did this book take you to write? From one perspective, it took me 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I did write quite a few other books in between. I got quite serious about writing it in the mid-90s. And I actually proposed it to my publisher at that point. I said that I wanted to write a book about public discourse, the argument culture, and this book about my father. And they said, if you want to write the argument culture, then the other one has to be about relationships. They didn't want the book about my father. And I said, well, all right. And I wrote The Argument Culture, and then I wrote a book called I Only Say This Because I Love You, about adult family relationships. And then that had a book about mothers and daughters, a chapter that people liked very much. So I wrote the book about mothers and daughters. Then my mother passed away while I was writing that book, so that delayed that a bit. I, I was very close to my mother when she got older, the tensions were no longer there. And then somehow in the mid-90s, I got quite serious, had all that material, had all those notes, but I did move away from the idea of actually writing it. I got more serious about it around 2012, 13. I had a year, had a sabbatical, and I did come out with a draft at that point, but didn't really start shaping it until a couple of years ago. And again, wrote another book in between, my book about friendship, I only say this because I love you. And then I guess, in a way, I needed that much distance from my father. He has now, it's now 14 years since, since he passed away. And I guess I was finally ready to bring it all together and, and shape it. And do you now feel like a sense of closure now that it's come out into the world and it's done and it's here? And Oh, yeah. Understatement <laughs> of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm so 
thrilled that I that I got it done, that it's published. I had promised him I would write it, and he was pleased that I was writing it. We talked about it, and he sent me things with that in mind. You know, keep this. I hope you have a file for this. You know, keep it. Keep these things together in a file. We're very lucky. As I said, he was really healthy until the end, but there was just one week. He had a heart attack. He was in the hospital. He seemed to be recovering, and then he had a stroke. So after the stroke, he wasn't responsive, but the hospice people assured us he could hear. And they said, talk to him about all the good times you had. And I thought, well, I think I'll tell him what I think he would appreciate hearing. And I said, I promise you, I will write the book about you. So I'm glad I kept my promise. I'm glad you did too. That's really nice. It's so special. I'm glad you got to tell him. And I don't know, I sort of believe that people know on some level, even if they're not with us, which sounds a little woo-woo, but you know, I do believe that it's out there and it's acknowledged in some way. (laughs) You know, I think I do too, although clearly he was an atheist, so he didn't literally believe in the afterlife. But one of the conversations we had really stuck in my mind, we were talking about, this is when he was again, 97, and we were talking about how old I, how long I would live and how I would like living that old. And I said, I said, I guess I won't know till it happens. And he said, well, I'll have to, you'll have to tell me when I'm up there. He said, um, I'll be watching you from up there. Oh, so I feel in a way so that nice. he is. That's amazing. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? The advice is pretty much advice that I was told and, and inspired by many years ago. Just write. <laughs> Don't wait until you've got it all right. All those notes that I was writing all those years, I did eventually incorporate, not all of them, of course I couldn't, but many of them. If I had waited until I knew what shape the book was going to have, I would never have written it because it was so hard to know what shape it would have until I started writing. And then having all that material, and then it was certainly challenging to figure out how to shape it, what to include, what to leave out. Uh, Maybe that was the hardest, deciding what to leave out. But Having been writing and having all that material to start with, I think is what made it possible. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you for sharing your beautiful stories. And I feel so great knowing that I got to hear just a sliver of the backstory of this beautiful sort of love letter to your dad. So thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Thanks so much to Mindy Kaling and her book, Nothing Like I Imagined, for sponsoring this episode. You can get it on amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. And again, it's called Nothing Like I Imagined. Go check it out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 